Wow, how do you follow that? Let's follow it with prayer. Father in heaven, we're reminded again this morning and especially in and through this last song for the incredible blessing and joy that you give us in children. Thank you for entrusting us and partnering with you to love them and to guide them. And Father, we know that even as precious as they are to us, your own baby boy was precious to you. And so thank you, Father, for sharing him, for giving him up to us and for us because you love us that much. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Whew. Steve, you can't do that to me before I have to get up and preach. Um, I have um, I have one burning question to begin with this morning. Some of you may have uh, even know know what it is when you came in. If you noticed, if you weren't looking at your feet too much because of the cold, and the burning question this morning is. Where in the world is Harold the angel who took him down from our Christmas tree? People of interest in the ongoing investigation include Paul Wiggs and Katie Brady. But no arrests have been made at this time. However, eyewitnesses confirm that Paul was seen this past week with angel glitter all over his face. But we've yet to confirm this report. Authorities are treating it as a kidnapping and have spared no expense in finding Harold. Those investigating the incident have asked me to share with you some recent pictures, possibly of Harold, in the hopes that if you see these pictures, well, someone here might have information helpful to the investigation. So as you can see, Harold was purportedly on hand for the recent release of New Moon. Interestingly enough, it's believed Harold was not there to save Bella from Edward or Jacob, but to save Bella from herself. Oh my goodness, this girl has issues. (laughs) And then he was spotted on the sidelines of Thursday's Bronco game against the Giants. At least his sighting there solved another mystery that had everyone baffled. How on earth did the Broncos win? (laughs) Now we know. Divine intervention. (laughs) I got two or three more to go after that tithing video. Finally, apparently, Tariq and Michal Salahi weren't the only ones crashing the president's party. Authorities are investigating whether Harold and the Salahis were working in concert or alone. Currently, there is no comment on that pending investigation. So, 
if anyone here has information on the whereabouts of Harold, please let us know. In fact, let me tell you, in fact, Harold was seen on the, pres- uh, on the premises here early this morning. And so here's the deal. After the service, not now, but after the service, the first five people to spot Harold and then tell Pastor Dave Beatty where he is, they will see, receive one of these here coffee bar free drink tokens. Now, a couple of needed additional words. I'm told Harold is in plain sight, so don't start ransacking the church. You know, hidden in plain sight. You'll see him if you look in the right place. So he's in plain sight. If you see him, tell Dave if you're one of the first five, you get a free coffee token. And we'll do this. We'll do this for the, oh, next couple of weeks, too. Why not? Although Harold is sure to move to a new location each week. We'll call it, uh, call it a little extra motivation to get up and go to church in a blizzard, right? Oh, got to go to church to find Harold. Have some fun with it. We like to have fun here. Uh, please, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, where we've been continuing our Love God, Love Others series by looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Last week, we began our study of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. And before we complete our look at this remarkable story, let's review two things. First, you remember from last week that by Jesus' day, believing Jews, including Jesus, had developed a ranking of commandments from the greatest to the least. And the reason they did this was because life often presents and presented situations where it was impossible to keep two commandments at the same time, or at least literally at the same moment in time. One example we've been using is where a donkey falls over on the Sabbath. Strange as that sounds, God commanded his people, when that happens, when a donkey falls over, get your your neighbor's donkey back on its feet. But he also commanded no work on the Sabbath. So what do you do when a donkey falls over on a Sabbath? help your neighbor get it back up again right away? Or do you wait until the Sabbath is over before helping? Your answer would depend on which command you think is greater. Help your neighbor or keep the Sabbath. Because if two commandments collide like that, you always keep what you feel is the greater commandment. Now, different groups or schools, what the Jews call houses, Different houses in Jesus' day, schools of thought, had different opinions on how to rank God's commandments. There were two main competing schools in Jesus' day, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. Hillel and Shammai both were, like Jesus, Jewish rabbis, and each had their own following or school or house. And these two disagreed over many things. Someone once counted, and these two houses had around 300 disputes or differences of opinion. Both Hillel and Shammai lived at the same time as Jesus. They were contemporaries of his. 
Hillel died somewhere between 10 and 20 A.D. That's quite a range, but we're just not sure of the exact date. And Shammai, we're a little sure, died in 30 A.D. Now, while both of these two houses, these two schools of thought, had love God with all your heart, soul, and might as the greatest commandment, beginning with commandment number two, the second greatest commandment, each house had different rankings of greatest to least commandments. The more conservative house of Shammai taught that after love God, things like keep the Sabbath, don't touch dead bodies, ritual purity, they had a higher priority than love your neighbor. The more liberal or progressive school of Hillel, they taught that after love God, love your neighbor was the next or second greatest commandment. Rabbi Hillel was the first in recorded history to say, here's his quote, that which is hateful to you, do not do it to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, Hillel first said. The rest is commentary. Go and study it. Now, we know when Jesus came along, he sided with which school of thought on this love your neighbor ranking as the second greatest commandment? This is to see if you're with me. Which school of thought? Yes, Jesus, like Hillel before him, taught that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. One reason that the priority of the love your neighbor commandment was so disputed between these two houses of Shammai and Hillel is because they also disagreed on who exactly was the neighbor. Shammai and Hillel had different definitions of neighbor. The more conservative house, Shammai, taught that only believing Jews are your neighbors. How about pagans? Certainly not. Romans or Greeks? No. Well, come on, Shammai, not even unbelieving Jews, blood Jews, sons and daughters of Abraham, Shammai? No, Shammai said. God did not intend for them to be neighbors when he said, love your neighbor, only believing Jews. Well, Shammai, how about Samaritans? Are you kidding me? Samaritans? (laughs) No way. The more progressive house, Hillel, in fact the most progressive of its day, taught that because all people are made in the image of God, everyone was your neighbor. Believing Jews? Of course. Unbelieving Jews? Yes, said Hillel. We need to love them too. Romans, Greeks, other pagans? Yes. Well, then, Hillel, Samaritans too, right, Hillel? Uh, no, said Hillel. Not even the most liberal school in Jesus' day believed that God intended Samaritans as neighbor when he said, love your neighbor. And that takes us to the second lesson to review this morning before jumping back into Luke 10. Why such animosity towards Samaritans? In short, Jews hated Samaritans because the Jews in Jesus' day at least had concluded Samaritans were descendants of sinful marriages, 
between Jews and non-Jews during the Babylonian captivity 600 years before Jesus. Remember, that's when Babylon came and took many Jews back to Babylon. Daniel and his fiery furnace friends, the most famous examples perhaps. But many Jews also remained behind in Israel. Babylon didn't deport them all. And those who remained, the story goes, had children with pagans. And that's something that God said, don't. And so those children between Jews and non-Jews, those offspring of illegitimate marriages, and their descendants are the Samaritans. And so when Ezra and Nehemiah come back with Jews from Babylon to rebuild, they discover these half-Jews in the land. And a deep prejudice, deep hatred begins, one that by Jesus' day was as intense as any religious, even racially overtoned prejudice could possibly be. Jews hated Samaritans. And Samaritans hated them right back. And so no one, not even the liberal house of Hillel, considered Samaritans as neighbors that God commands to love. In Jesus' day, the term good Samaritan would have been one of those oxymorons. Good Samaritan? Impossible. No such thing. They're an abomination. Samaritans were the most despised enemies of the Jews. Okay. With that review and background in mind, let's take a look at our story again this morning from Luke chapter 10. This time as we read through it, we'll stop and pause to make comments and discuss portions along the way. Luke chapter 10, I'm reading beginning at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, almost undoubtedly a Pharisee, it was a way you would... Uh, denote a Pharisee. They were experts in the law. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A couple of things to pull from that verse. The fact that he stands up and addresses Jesus as teacher almost undoubtedly denotes respect I know it says that he stood up to test Jesus, but test is not necessarily negative. It can be negative, but probably not in this context. It's a way of saying, I'm going to see what he thinks. So he stands up and addresses him with respect. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This expert asks. Verse 26, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Jesus answers the question with a question, like many teachers of his day. He answered, Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The guy gets it right. And by the way, whose house did this Pharisee follow? Shammai or Hillel? Hillel, right. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Jesus gives the man a gold star. But the man can't seem to leave well enough alone. Verse 29, he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The man wanted to justify himself. 
He wants to look good. He wants affirmation that indeed he's got this eternal life thing, how to inherit it, all wired and figured out. He's right. And we'll see what he probably had on his mind in a minute. But one, remember his motive here for asking this question. And two, remember the question that Jesus answers with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Is the question the parable is designed to answer. And so in verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. We talked about last week that a priest's priority of commands would have been don't touch a nearly dead or a dead or nearly dead body would have been a greater command than love your neighbor and help him. So he passes by, and no one was surprised. Verse 32, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Again, no one listening that day was surprised. A Levite, same priority of ritual purity commands above love your neighbor. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, here is where Jesus' brilliance as a teacher starts jumping from the page. You see, these stories, there's many of these stories in Judaism, stretching way back to nearly the time of Jesus. And these stories, it's, there's a priest, there's a Levite, and a Pharisee. Priest, Levite, and Pharisee. They come across a situation in life, and they react differently. It's very common, sort of like, well, we have jokes like that, right? Types of jokes today, right? And so a priest, a rabbi, and a pastor are riding on a plane, right? Or a priest, a rabbi, and a pastor walk into a bar. Maybe that's not so good whatever, but it's a very common form of a joke, right? And so too, a very common form of Jewish teaching story begins something like or includes, and so a priest and a Levite and a Pharisee each saw this or that or experienced this or that. In this case, what everyone there was expecting, in my opinion, because of how common the story was, and so a priest, a Levite, and a Pharisee came across this nearly dead man. That's how the story was supposed to go. But oh, not this one. Jesus gives it a brilliant twist. See, I think everyone there that day listening to Jesus, as soon as that story began and a priest came wandering down the road, they all knew or they thought they knew, I know where this is going, priest, Levite, and Pharisee. Yep. And the guy who really thought he knew this, where this was going was the Hillel Pharisee who asked the question, who is my neighbor? Remember, he asked this thing, asked this question in order to look good, in order to justify his position, his belief, and justify himself as a Hillel Pharisee, fresh off his gold star from Jesus. Because Pharisees, I mean, here's the thing. Because Pharisees were the ones who taught using this type of story with priest, Levite, and Pharisee, because the Pharisees, they're the ones who wrote and used those stories. 
Guess who was always the hero in the story? Take a wild guess. Oh, yeah, Pharisee always looked good in these stories. You know, and I picture Jesus there that day. The man comes up with the question, stands up, teacher, yes. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you think? What does the law say? Love God with all of your all. You're all. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, good job. Do that and you will live. Maybe at that point Jesus turns back to what he was doing or teaching or something. And the guy <clears throat> clears his voice again. Rabbi, who's my neighbor? And I wonder if Jesus didn't pause and look back at the expert and say, wow, you feel pretty good about having your theology right, don't you? But do you, my friend? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, etc., etc., etc. And oh, my friends, I would have loved to see the look on everyone's faces when Jesus said Samaritan instead of Pharisee as the guy coming down the road last. I bet they were shocked, floored, especially the Pharisee who Jesus was addressing. I wonder if Jesus, how could he have resisted? He gets to that point in the story where the Samaritan comes down the road and people are just sort of listening. Priest comes along the road. Yeah, we all know what the priest is going to do. Pass him by. Yep, no surprise there. Levite comes down the road. Yeah, we all know. Okay, here comes the Pharisee. He's going to be the hero. You know, I thought someone told me this was a good teacher. And I wonder if Jesus, the excellent teacher and communicator that he is, he gets to that third person coming down the road. And along comes a Samaritan. I mean, people got whiplash that day doing double takes, I think. Boom! When he says that word. Did he just say, Samaritan? They whisper the word, right? You whisper those words, you guys. Did he just say, Samaritan? Oh, my word. Is he going to make a disgusting Samaritan the hero? Let's keep listening. Oh, my goodness, he is. You've got to be kidding me. So Jesus pulls a fast one on everyone there that day. No one, no one in his day would have made the Samaritan the hero of this story. No one. Except Jesus. Let's finish the story. The Samaritan in verse 34 went to the wounded man and bandaged his, bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus again asks a question. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The guy can't even get himself to use the word Samaritan. By now he's got big time egg all over his face. He's got to be thinking, what in the world just happened? Where'd my gold star go? 
wow, this great rabbi was supposed to justify me and what I believe. I was supposed to be the exemplary hero here. What happened? He can't even say Samaritan. The one who had mercy on him. Who? The one who had mercy on him. And then, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, what Jesus says next absolutely rocked the world of first century Judaism to its very core. And, my friends, needs to rock the church today and each one of us who is part of her to our very core too. Jesus told him, verse 37, go and do likewise. Now, here's the priceless question for this parable this morning. Miss it? And I believe we miss the deepest, most profound point of the parable altogether. Miss this next question and the parable loses its intended punch. It's the crux of Jesus' brilliant entire teaching that day. Jesus tells the man who already believes and who has already sold out that love God and love your neighbor are the greatest and second greatest commandments. Jesus says to that man, go and do likewise. And the question is, the priceless question is, go and do what? What's the context? Go and love your neighbor. Someone's jumping ahead. Let's take it one step at a time. Go and love your neighbor. And who in the parable is the neighbor? A Samaritan. Go and love Samaritans. See, a lot of times we're tempted to end or be satisfied with this parable being about, we make the neighbor that we're to love the guy who's been beaten by robbers, right? That's the neighbor we need to help. That's not who Jesus identifies as the neighbor in the parable. The neighbor in the context of who is my neighbor I need to love is the Samaritan. And he says to this perhaps proud Hillel Pharisee, who has it right theologically, you really want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life? That's the question in verse 25 that started this whole exchange. You really know what you must do? Then, my friend, go and love your most despised enemy. Go and love Samaritans. This parable is not primarily about helping nearly dead people lying in the road. Of course we do that. We don't need a whole parable to be told that. And you know what? That Hillel Pharisee didn't, that day didn't need to be told that either. Remember, he had love your neighbor as the second command. I have no doubt he too would have helped the nearly dead man. Instead, what that Pharisee needed to hear, and what I think we need to hear too, beginning with me, is that the neighbors we are to love include our enemies, the ones we despise. (sighs) 
One test of any interpretation of any passage in Scripture is to check how it matches with the rest of Scripture. It must be consistent to be correct. Well, how about this radical interpretation of this parable this morning, that we're to love our enemies? Well, what about Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, that you may inherit eternal life. Hmm. Or how about Luke chapter 6? Jesus again. Listen to what he says. But I tell you who hear me. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, don't stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. There's inherit eternal life again. Because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Merciful. Boy pretty consistent with what we've looked at this morning in the parable of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? David Flusser, a brilliant Jewish teacher, Flusser, Flusser passed away a few years ago, and he never came to the conclusion, unfortunately, that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. But Flusser, who nevertheless recognized Jesus as the greatest Jewish teacher ever, notes the following about us about we followers of Jesus, specifically about Jesus' love your enemy teaching. Flusser once said, if Christians ever really fully grasp and live the love your enemy teaching of their rabbi, Yeshua, they would change the world. And you know what? I think he's right. So who is your Samaritan today? Who's your enemy that God is calling you to love? I don't know if it's possible today to name a single enemy that for all of us would resonate with us like Samaritans resonated with all the Jews that day. At least from an emotive level, maybe if I said the name Osama bin Laden, We're called to love that guy? 
If you don't think so, please, please tell me why not or how possibly not, given what this says, what Jesus himself says. And I know love often needs to be tough love. It needs to include things like justice for those innocents who enemies hurt. Justice is a part of love. True love is just love. And love includes healthy boundaries. I understand that. There are times when the loving thing to do is to correct someone with tough love. And Ben Laden clearly needs some tough love. Good heavens. I agree. He needs to be brought to justice and kept from hurting innocent people. But at its core, our feelings or treatment, even of a Bin Laden. Tough love better still be love based on Jesus' clear as a bell teaching to love our enemies, right? Do we sincerely hope and allow for and pray and even try our best to help that Bin Laden repents and comes to know Jesus? Or truthfully, do we just want him dead because he hurts and threatens us? Love your enemies, Jesus says. Pray for them. Do good to them, Jesus says. It's radical stuff. And if not Bin Laden, if not Bin Laden for you, then who are your Samaritans today? We all have them in our lives, I have little doubt. Who's that person that makes you cringe whenever they come into a room? Because they always say hurtful things to you or they've done something awful to you in the past. Can you love that person? Who do you try and avoid at all costs? Don't look at them. (laughs) Who's that person? Can you love, yes, even them? And if you're like me, swallowing hard over this tough teaching, and you're thinking like me, no way. No way on earth could I love that person. Then let me share with you a word of encouragement. Jesus believes you can. He believes you can be just like him. And so he believes you can love even them. In the chapter immediately before the parable of the Good Samaritan, no coincidence that toward the end of Luke 9, right before our story, we have recorded there what I think is just a hilarious little story. Here it is, if I can find it. As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven... Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, near the end of his ministry. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, Do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? 
<laughs> These very brief words from Luke. But Jesus turned and, rebu- and rebuked them. <laughs> and they went to another village. That's another exchange I would have loved to have seen. James and John, those two brothers who are given the, the nickname my Jesus, it seems, or they have the nickname Sons of Thunder. I, I wonder why. So here are the Sons of Thunder. They get upset because the village isn't going to welcome them into their village, their most hated enemy. And so they come, hey, can we drop fire down from heaven on their heads? You just see Jesus, oi, what? No! No fire. Come on. And he starts thinking maybe if it's chronological here, it's tough to say in Luke that, you know what, I need a story. I'm going to look for occasion to tell this one about the Good Samaritan because James and John clearly don't get it. And P.S., you know, we can really see again the probability, right, that these disciples are like teenagers. Doesn't that sound like some teens? got the Messiah with us, and this is awesome, and we know he's Messiah, and these Samaritans, and hey, can we call out fire? No! That's why I love working with kids, that their enthusiasm. No wonder he picked them. You know, no wonder he picks these zealots who go around thinking that to kill your neighbor is best for them sometimes. And you say, why would Jesus do that? He finds passion. He looks up there, and he says, wow, look at that passion and intensity. I can use that heart. It's got to turn it from kill and hate to love. You think, oh, but at least it's there. They're passionate about it. You give me the problem any day in any church community, in any Christian community, of having to rein in passion and, and steer it versus trying to have to create it when people are sitting there like a bunch of dead fish. Come on, let's go. Any day, give me someone who's doing too much or, you know, and hopefully like Jesus we respect, no, stop calling down fire. I'm so glad you care so deeply. Put that here. Cracks me up. And you know what? It breaks me really too, and it gives me hope and encouragement in my own struggle with enemy love. Because those two sons of thunder These two, oh please, Jesus, let us do a Sodom and Gomorrah on the Samaritans, please. They learn to love even their enemies, just like their rabbi. And if they can, so help them God, then so can I and so can we, so help us God. The Apostle John was one of those call fire down disciples. John. The one who later in life would write, God is love, God is love. Love one another, love one another, love one another. If you say you love God but hate your neighbor, you're a liar. Over and over and over again, this fiery son of thunder also wrote, For God so loved the world, which includes our enemies. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, which includes our enemies, That whoever believes in him, even Samaritans, John, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. No fire from heaven on them, John. 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Wow! If a son of thunder, and apparently lightning too, can learn to love even enemies, well, so help us God, so can we. Jesus told the Pharisee to go and do. And we don't know whether or not he did. He may have. We're very quick to conclude he didn't. Hey, even though he couldn't say the word Samaritan, at least he gave, maybe even acknowledged, for the second time, the right answer. Got himself another gold star after all for giving the right answer, even if it cost him some pride and egg on his face. He doesn't argue with the point, the point with Jesus at all. Instead, he gives the famous rabbi the answer he wanted. The neighbor we should love is the one who showed mercy on him. Who knows? Maybe weeping. Maybe captivated by Jesus' teaching. Maybe in his heart of hearts, you know what? You're right. Jesus told the Pharisee to go and do And we don't know whether or not he did. But my question I will end with this morning is this. Will you? Will you go and do likewise? Will you go and love your enemies? Will we? So help us God. We have an opportunity the next couple of weeks to love our neighbors. If those helping would please get prepared and come on forward. They have, we have a Christmas gift that many of you, I hope, will accept. For the last few weeks, if you've been here at all, you know we've been collecting money in red envelopes from all y'all, right? But we haven't told you what we're doing with the money until right now. Ooh, are you excited? No, I need more excitement than that. I'll let you go soon. You know, I know the Broncos are playing. I'm sorry, but some things... Just having too much fun this morning. So, are you excited to find out? All right. Okay, first of all, first of all, I need to tell you this. You guys just blew me away. You blew leadership away. I'm going to let you blow each other away. You gave over $12,000 in those little red envelopes. Can you believe it? That's amazing. And so here's what we're going to do. We put the money that you gave back into the red envelopes, and in a minute, we're going to give them back to you. Can you believe that? (laughs) Apparently you can. Yeah, see, it's like, wait a minute. Churches are always taking our money, right? That's what George said. But not right now. We're going to give it back to you, and... We're going to get back to you what God led you to give, but there's a catch. You say, aha, I knew it. That's right. And here's the catch. If you accept this money back, if you take an envelope, then you are agreeing that you will take the money and use it to love someone in a personal way sometime during the next two weeks. And that you will buy December 20. Tell us the story about what you did with the money and what happened, okay? Oh, this is so cool. Now, we don't have enough envelopes for every single person in here. Close, but not quite. So we were thinking 
Maybe some of you, judging by how many envelopes came in, are wanting to do this as a couple or as a family. So hopefully we won't run out. So if, if you feel led this morning to participate, whether or not you are able to hand in a red envelope, you may still participate. Okay? If you feel led this morning to participate in this, please take an envelope. Okay? As an individual or a couple or a family. All right, let's go ahead. Let's start passing them out. As it comes by, let me keep giving you some more instructions. Now, when you get your envelope, you will find somewhere between $10 and $100 in there. The amount is random. I love doing that part random because it invites God into the determination of how much you'll need to share with that person this Christmas. Because he already knows who it is, doesn't he? So let's invite him into the randomness of it. So anywhere from $10 to $100. Now... Here's some ideas for what we sort of had in mind that you can do with the money. Not limited to these, but things like this. Take someone who is going through an especially tough time to coffee or lunch or even dinner, depending how much is in your envelope. Buy someone a tank of gas who's down on their luck. Find someone in the grocery store who looks like they can use the help and pay for their groceries. Use the money to buy the ingredients for an apple pie that you bake and bring them. Anything... But please, make it personal and face-to-face. I'm sure if we passed a microphone, you guys would have wonderful, great ideas of what to do with it. Now, just by way of comparison, here's what we're asking you not to do with the money. Please, don't give this money, at least, right back to us. Don't donate it to another ministry or charity. Don't throw it in the bell ringer's bucket. That's great, but not for this Lesson, if you want to look at it that way, or this experience. Those things are more of an arm's length transaction than what we'd like uh, inviting you to experience this Christmas. Make it personal. Make it face-to-face. And I know it's a challenge for some who are a little shy about such things, and that's okay. Maybe your husband or wife or children can take the lead there if you'd rather not be that point person. But do something loving with the money in a personal face-to-face way with someone in particular. And, for those of you, you know, who want an extra challenge, pray about this, will you? How about choosing one of those enemies to love with this money? (laughs) Maybe choose that person who you always try and avoid or who just hates you or is mean to you and maybe you're really not so crazy about either. Give him a call for the first time in years. Invite him to coffee. Bring him a gift. It's a marvelous step in loving others that might be for you and for us. So, we're inviting you to do something that gives action, however small, to what we've been talking about for the past three months. Here's that opportunity. And when you're done, remember the catch number two, you need to report the story. We've got on our website, you see it on the screen, there is a link over to the right side. You see the arrow there? Click on that link. As they'll do, a page will open. It's a very simple place. You put your name in the short part. And then in that longer block, there's you just write and you tell us what happened. Write down your story. And you need to do this by December 20. Because in turn, we're going to have some fun and do something with your stories. Okay? But we need them back in by December 20. you got two weeks. So, all right, West Bowles, love God and love others. Are you ready for this? Okay, be a little light to someone in a dark place or time this Christmas. 
Yes? All right. How are we doing? Did we totally run out or did we have some more? There's more. Now, if you're one of those kind-hearted people that, you know, I don't want, I, I kind of want to do it, but I want to make sure someone else has the opportunity, and so you passed by, but you really kind of wanted to do it, we have extra. I'm going to ask Bob to just put them in the back, you know, where you handed them in. So on your way out, if you want to take one more, uh, because you sort of, like I said, you were being kind to your, you were loving your neighbor who maybe you wanted to make sure they got an envelope, go ahead and take one on the way out, okay? All right. Jesus told a Pharisee to go and do. And we don't know whether or not he did. But our question this morning is, will you? Will you go and do likewise? Will you go and love your neighbor? Will we so help us, God? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we follow the most amazing God, the most amazing teacher of truth, that we could possibly imagine. And it's such a delight to sit 2,000 years later and still feel the passion and the brilliance of the teaching of truth of your Son. And even in that light, Father, to feel again that same challenge, that same mountain to climb, that same standard of loving even enemies, it's a big one and it's a heavy one. But Father, you also promise that you'll carry that burden for us if we let you and step out in faith with you. You will partner with us. You believe in us that together we can do it and we will do it together with you. Give us that courage, Father, to step out and to love our neighbor, even our enemies, that the world may know there is a God and there is salvation in Jesus and in Jesus' name alone. We love you and in Jesus' precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand, please? We didn't recite Shema together this morning, but let's use it, or a form of it, at least in form of God's benediction and blessing on you. Here, O West Bowles Community Church, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. So help you God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas. Have fun with that Red Envelope Initiative. Can't wait to read your stories. Praise God.